Okay, let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather and for the time that you have gifted us with. We pray that you'd help us to make the most of it and that you would use it to guide, to instruct, to build, and to encourage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... I'm going through, as I look back on 50 years of ministry, sort of the major things that God has taught me, things I didn't know before. And uh, perhaps of them, the most unfortunate is the one we're going to talk about today. Um, Because one thing that I wish that I didn't have to learn was something that I had to learn a lot. And that's um, about Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, I, you know, from very on, for very early on in my ministry, my my best friend Scott Hahn, who's today a prominent Catholic apologist, and became interested in Catholicism and and. Uh, did everything in his power to try to take me along with him. And uh, and my associate pastor at the time here, Bill Bales, actually under Scott's influence went to Rome. And, uh, and you know, I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and that's a non-denominational seminary. And that means that they don't pay attention, they don't emphasize... Um, distinctives between different groups because that just stirs up controversy. And if the professors start, you know, talking about anti-Catholic things or whatever, you know, there's that's going to disturb a lot of people. So they avoid that kind of stuff in a seminary like that. So I hadn't really been taught much about this kind of conflict, and so I was, it was new to me and. Um, I didn't grow up in any church, really. I mean, I become a Christian later in my youth um, in a Presbyterian church, but not a Presbyterian church. Larry can <laughs> affirm that emphasized any distinctives like between this kind of church and that kind of church. Just everybody love each other and read the New Testament and love Jesus. And so um, this was something I was, it was like these circumstances began to rub my face in it, whether I liked it or not. And as a result, I, I've learned a lot over the years. And, and it, when it started, it never really stopped. It's like been a consistent theme all through the, my ministry for some reason. I don't know why. I, you know, maybe in heaven I'll find out. Or maybe even on earth somebody will give me an insight and I'll understand. But you know, I and many fellow pastors who haven't had any of the kind of experiences I've had here, where where people have, you know, started struggling, and and then I've worked with them and tried to persuade them, and learned more and more about it along the way to be able to um, protect the flock from going astray in these ways, and so. But one thing that's good about it is that I have learned a lot and 
I'm more convinced that the Bible alone is a sure foundation for the church and for each believer than ever. And I want to spend today and perhaps next week as well explaining a little bit about why. Um, so, you know, the big question, the first question, the, the preeminent question between the Protestant approach to Christianity and the approach of non-Protestants, shall we say, is the question of authority. What is the Christian's final authority? Um, and this, of course, was defined in the Reformation for the Protestants as sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone is our authority. That is, our authority of what is true. I don't mean human authority, like who's in charge of deciding what time church is. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, you know, those are, those are choices that, that have to be made by somebody, and others have to go along with it. But, um, but when it comes to what is true, um, Protestants have, uh, have built their movement on, you know, that the Bible is the final authority, as you all know. Um, but this is the question. Um, you know, the fact is, every believer has to face this. Uh, your college roommate may be the one who t- first told you about Jesus. But your college roommate can't be your final authority over everything. You know, once you've accepted Christ and are following him, you have to have a, a source. Where is my source of truth? How do I know whether this group is right about this or this group is right? How do I know if what I'm, what, I'm the details of what I'm supposed to believe and what I'm supposed to do? Um, and so this question is what I want to talk about and how you know, that we begin this question really with the, the obvious statement seems to me that, that the final one who is the authority is God. That he's the only, he is the truth. Whatever God says is the one who we have to trust. And right there, of course, you've eliminated many Christians, honestly. Because there are many Christians who don't even, who, you know, it's their, their, their final trust is in the feeling that they have inside or the voice that they hear inside that, that they feel like is speaking to them. And I'm not trying to say that there's nothing to learn from your feelings or from the thoughts that you have in your mind. But none of that can be your final authority. You can't trust those things as if, as, as you trust God and what he says. And of course there are many believers, people who claim to be believers, who, and I'm sure there's a combination of both, who, who would say that, um, you know, I read the Bible and there, there's just some things that are obviously wrong. And don't feel any compulsion to sort of uh, 
acquiesce to those things because, I don't know, it's too old, somebody made a mistake along the way, whatever, you know, it, it just, I, that can't be true. But of course, if you believe that Scripture is your final authority, you can't do that. Because if you do that, ultimately what you're saying is that you are the final authority. And that your heart is the one trustworthy thing in the whole universe in terms of what it says. And even, I mean, how in the world could that possibly be true? That my heart, as opposed to everyone else's heart, and everyone else's mind, and all the prophets, and everything, everything said in, has been said in the past, that my heart is the one true thing, the one thing that can be trusted. It just can't be. <laughs> and so... Sorry, I get a little emotional. That's uh, <laughs> So, it can't be me. It's got to be God. And if it is God, then how does, you know, how has God spoken? And what source of, what channel has he spoken through that we can trust and, of course, you know, we, among Christians, we have to start with the Bible because that's the one thing that, uh, um, you know, we, we could say even just sort of uh, practically that all the branches have acknowledged that the Bible is the Word of God, even if they have other sources that they believe in too. But more than that, we know that the Bible is the Word of God because of Jesus. If Jesus is God and the New Testament is even a faithful, let alone infallible, record of his life and his teachings, then the Old Testament has to be the Word of God because he said it was. And he treated it like that. Consistently, purely, perfectly, he never said anything to, to put a hint of doubt on the idea that the Old Testament is the Word of God. So that's where we start. The Old Testament is the Word of God, but then it's clear that it doesn't end there because Jesus himself not only endorsed the Old Testament as the Word of God, but he anticipated over and over again that his own words and actions would end up being recorded for future generations. You know, he said, as long as you know history goes on, this woman will be recognized for her for what she's done here. How, if there's not going to be a New Testament, how could that be possible? How could the story of what some woman did, you know, in the Gospels, 
be carried on for thousands of years if it isn't written down. So Jesus is clearly anticipating it. And through his apostles, you know, he, he puts special attention and emphasis on his apostles and, and tells them that, you know, after I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So he is clearly thinking and setting things up for there to be a New Testament. And then, of course, Jesus himself, in the book of Revelation, is just constantly saying, write this down. Put this down, Apostle John. And, and it, you know, it's not, I can't, you know, it's not like this one verse that just lays all this out, but there's so many little pointers that make it so clear that Jesus was setting everything up for there to be a New Testament. In the, in the uh, tradition, if you will, of the Old Testament. In the same path of the Old Testament. And so, um, you know, that is ultimately even better than the fact that all Christians have, you know, all the Christian bodies have said that the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, so then... Um, question is, is there another source? And of course, there are many churches that not only uh, believe in another source, but, you know, claim another source as, you know, to be put on the same level as the Bible. And in practice, to be elevated over the Bible. Now, they'd never say that they, their church or their tradition or whatever is elevated over the Bible. But that really is the only logical conclusion of what they believe. Because whenever there's something um, that the Bible says that seems to be in tension with what the other source of truth is, which wins out? It's the other source of truth. Right? So if, if uh, you know, the Bible says that, um, you know, nothing about Mary being a virgin for her entire life, as opposed to just the, a virgin at the time of Christ's inception and for the time until after Jesus was born. That's what the New Testament says. But, but uh you know, they believed that she was a virgin her whole life. And why? Because she, to bear Jesus, she had to be pure, sinless. And, and that means that you can't have sex. Because sex, of course, is necessary, you know, for, but it's like a little evil. So we can't have her getting into that kind of stuff if she's sinless. She has to be like Jesus, who never got into that kind of stuff, right? And so, so that's what the tradition says. So, but the New Testament says nothing about it. So, who wins out? The church wins out. Anyway, so what are the, some of the th proposals? The church, the early church fathers, which are really big in the. Uh, um, Eastern Orthodox Church, the, the creeds, the early Christian creeds, 
um, which of course uh, most of which are embraced by all Christians but Protestants don't believe that they are the infallible word of God they're just accurate um, statements of what the Bible teaches so um, but then there's there's tradition which is you know overlapping and there's uh, prophecies you know that uh, there are the possibility that that just like in the Old Testament there were times in the Old Testament where you had where everybody has to agree that you had soul of scripture because there was no prophet we're even told there was no prophet in that day right and if there was no prophet in that day then what did you have from God you had the, you had the, the, the scriptures that's all you had so there was soul of scripture there are also days when there was the Bible, the scriptures, and a prophet. You know, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and they had both. And so the question is, what kind of day is this? Is this the kind of day where you have both prophets and the scriptures? Or is this the kind of day where you just have the scriptures? And so the question is, you know, are there prophets today? And of course, that's very complicated. That's, that question is complicated by a lot of modern theologians who've said, well, yeah, it's prophecy, but it's not the same prophecy, kind of prophecy as there was before. So that, so that's a complicated. That's not as simple as it might seem. But okay. Um, so it seems to me that the place we have to start in all this is the Bible you know if, uh, if I'm supposed to know that this church speaks authoritatively for God I gotta find that in the Bible how you know if, if I'm walking down the street and God you know Shows me somehow that Jesus is God and I worship Him, and then I'm not like we have, you know, there's a common friend of ours who was uh, strung out on drugs for an entire summer in the beaches of uh, Morocco, and uh, and one day he rolled over in the sand and found a New Testament and read it, and he was converted. So where does he go? How does he know where who's you know, which Christian group he's supposed to go? All he has is a Bible. And that's, I'd say, where there has to be something in the Bible that's going to show you what to believe and what to, and, and it's going to give you the direction. So, anyway. Um, when we, so that's what we're, I want to talk about and cover. And um, in three parts we're going to talk about Matthew 16 you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church we're going to talk about tradition and the verses um, that, that uh, the orthodox and catholic people point to that, that uh, um, you know they say they claim 
tells us that we can't just rely on scripture but on traditions like for instance 2 Thessalonians 2.15 stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter 1 Corinthians 11.2 I commend, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, the traditions even as I delivered them to you so, do those verses really give us instruction that we're supposed to not only be paying attention to the scriptures, but to some kind of tradition that's passed down through the, the church orally, or through the writings of other people that aren't in the scriptures? And then the third thing is, so we got Matthew 16, which talks about the church. Is it the church? Like Catholics claim that Matthew 16 says, you know, when, when Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, that he's talking about Peter as the first pope and that the church is built on the, on the foundation of the pope and, um, and therefore um, the pope has been given the... Um, power to speak authoritatively and uh, for the for Christ and for the church he's the vicar of Christ he's he speaks in place of Christ in the world or is it or the uh, the third thing is the prophecy you know is there are there prophets today or have there been in the last um, you know since the days of the apostles who um, have spoken the true word of God and therefore uh, must be um, weighed what they said like it's part of scripture because it's the word of God. If God spoke to them, it's the word of God. Just like, even if it isn't written down, I mean, the fact is that Isaiah spoke the word of God. And there was a time before it got written down where what Isaiah had said, you had to obey because it was God's word, even if it wasn't written down. And do we live in that situation today? Um, so I want to go through these three things, and it's and uh, I don't I don't uh, I don't want to be forced to cover too much any week because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about these things. So I'm not, not exactly sure at this point how long it's going to take, but that's what we're going to do. Um, so let me just throw it out to you guys and see who has a thought, a question and uh, at, at this point. You still have 20 minutes. Jason? I just have a little thought on question of who is their prophecy today. Um, that, my understanding of uh, Roman Catholicism would be that you know, they would you know, deny that there has been any kind of new revelation since the apostles. Um, and so it's, it's not like there, there are other groups, whether it's you know, um, different kinds of Pentecostals or also the Mormons who like into credible beliefs, but uh, that would have some idea of new revelation. Right, right. But 
Roman Catholics, they would um, at least um, say that there's been no new revelation, but the kind of point there, when you brought up with, um, like, dogmas involved with Mary, uh, right. having in, like, the last couple centuries, even beyond the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, right. you have doctrines like the Immaculate Conception, right. or the Assumption of Mary, which right. are dogmas that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you have to believe these dogmas in order to be part of the Roman Catholic Church. And they claim that they don't have any new revelations of the apostles. That would mean that those dogmas were believed by the early church, were believed That's by right. the apostles. And passed down orally. Yes. And the thing is, there is no historical evidence for those dogmas. You can, you have, you, you, it goes like 500 years plus where you get start to see little signs of those kinds of dogmas. Right. And so the Catholic Church is kind of in a catch-22 where they're saying there's no new relation, but in order to believe this, it essentially is a new idea that was introduced at some point. If you're saying that that's not new revelation, then there's no reason to actually believe it as dogma. So, you know, I don't, I don't uh, profess to be an expert in these things. Um, my understanding is consistent with yours. But, on the other hand, um, what, what evidence could there be of oral, of what was passed down purely orally? Because it, once it gets written down, then it's not purely orally anymore. So, um, you know, they can say, yeah, it doesn't have to be any evidence that these are, that's what, we believe this by faith. And the fact is that, um, you know, we have the same philosophy in some ways. If the Bible says something, we believe it even if we can't explain it. And so if the tradition says something in their minds, it's the same sort of thing. If the church says something, it's like, yeah, I don't necessarily know how to explain it either, but I don't have to. It's the word of God. And so, um, you know, that's in my, you know, obviously there's a... Um, if it's not the word of God, then you're really in trouble. And I don't think it is. Who else? Mary. Um, well, I mean, God can do whatever he wants. 
Um, I, I do definitely agree with you that there are many who aren't Protestants who love Jesus sincerely and will be in heaven. Um, and you're right, we can't judge the heart, so we can't decide, you know, for, for even each other. For that matter, we have to make that assumption, but we can't see into the heart. So, um, and you know, the, the fruit thing is valid, although it's a little tricky because you also have, you know, people that, like Judas, no one saw the bad fruit. Everybody thought he was fine. I mean, when after three years of hanging around this guy, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And none of them say, I know it's Judas. So there was no bad fruit that they saw that defined him as any different than them. They didn't know about it. That's right. And, and that's the same thing with anyone. You don't know what's there. You can only see the visible fruit that you can see. And so, and I'm not suggesting that perceived fruit, when it comes in a Catholic or an Orthodox form, is false fruit at all. The fact is, there's false fruit in all the groups. And there's true fruit in all the groups. So I'm not, I'm not, all I'm saying is that there are limitations to the fruit thing. There's, you see good fruit and you see bad fruit in all three. So that doesn't really help us except perhaps to say, yes, they're, they're true believers in all three. However, I wanted to tell you a little story. I, uh, I was talking to um, a local pastor, Protestant pastor, who had been Baptist and had converted to charismatic and began a charismatic church in our area. And he started a pastor's fellowship group. And so I went to this Prince William Pastors Fellowship Group, and we we pray and everything. And uh, but there were liberal pastors who were coming too, and um, so it was you know a little awkward at times because you know you can't just talk about the gospel, you can't talk about people being saved from hell, stuff like that, because they got people that don't believe that in this group. And so I was expressing some concern to him about this welcoming in of, of people that, that uh, were so liberal that they really they didn't even believe that Christ was divine. And, and one thing he said to me stuck in my mind. He said, you know, I've known this guy and, and uh, what he preaches is heresy right from hell. But I really believe in his heart, he loves Jesus. That was the last time I went to that group. Because to me, it's like, I mean, if you can't tell by the guy preaching heresy, then, then there, you can't tell anything. So it seems to me that um, 
you know, even the idea that someone seems to love Jesus isn't you can't even count on that as being any kind of infallible indicator of what, where they're really at um, so I'm just saying there's limitations to the fruit thing Do I ever think, I say God can do whatever he wants if, if he... Do you, know, do you understand what I mean when I say, of course God can do whatever he wants. But I'm saying, I get the impression that people from the different Catholic and Orthodox traditions do not feel welcome or are not welcome to partake of communion with us. And Jesus, Jesus told us to break bread together and eat together. And I don't actually know for 100% sure, I can kind of like guess of what he meant by that. But he just said to do it, and he said to be unified. Yes. And so it doesn't make sense to me that we can disagree. It doesn't make sense to me that um, we cannot welcome people who, to, I'm losing my words, but I'm basically I wish that we can have communion together, even though we disagree. I do. I do too. We don't disagree on primary doctrine. I do too. I wish we could. And um, and I think we will on the last day. And uh, that great movie with Sally Fields um, called "The Places of the Heart." You know, at, at the end of the movie, well, these, it's about a community of people, and they're all church-going people, and they've hurt each other in very serious ways. You know, somebody had an affair with somebody else's husband, and anyway, so at the the last scene in the movie is there in church and the communion um, tray is being passed down the line and you know it makes sense you don't you're trying to figure out what's going on it makes sense this guy this guy this guy but then they pass it to somebody who died halfway through the story and you're going what's oh this has got to be heaven and so and you see that in the end you know here they are breaking bread together in spite of all that, the, that they've done to each other. And I believe that will happen. That on the last day, you know, we will be sitting at that wedding feast and we'll be, you know, it won't be a GPC or a Presbyterian or a Reformed table, you know, but we'll all be together and we'll be loving Jesus and we'll be, you know, seeing what we didn't see before and, and united in, in that. But whether it's likely for that to happen on this side of the judgment day, humanly speaking, it's very unlikely. But as I say, God can do anything. And if he wants it to happen, he can make it happen. But I, I wish it could happen. And we should pray that it could happen. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. Do we mind if they take communion? Well, yes. I mean, what I say every week would not prevent them from taking communion. Because I say, you know, you need to be believe in Christ and you need to be a part of, of a church that, that uplifts the, the Christ. And, and so... That according to their own definition of that, they, that shouldn't exclude them. However, the fact is, if they take communion here, 
they're disobeying their own church. We, we would not exclude them. We wouldn't exclude anyone, even if they weren't Christians. I mean, unless it was someone that... Because we don't know who they are or where they came from. So we're, there's a sense in which we're trusting the person to hear what we say and, and do it. But we're not going to... You know, Mike's not going to jump up and snatch a piece of bread out of somebody's fingers... So, Jason. If I can comment a little bit. Um, so, I get the um, longing when you see someone who is very sincere in their beliefs as a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox to be like, why can't we just get along? Um, and I think it's very important to take a step back and then in terms of well, what unites us in communion with Christ in the first place? Um, like, is, it, is it their behavior, their, uh, their works? You know, is, is that what unites us? Is good works what unites us in the body of Christ? Or is it something else? Is it the gospel? It, and um, so what you, you just said about, you know, that they would be going against their own churches you know, um, beliefs that they were participating in. That's one side of it. Like, if you go back historically to something like the Council of Trent during the Reformation, it was the Roman Church that was like, no, we are choosing not to associate with these um, Protestants um, anathematizing them. So that, that was the consequence of their um, leadership. Um, and um, if we were to go to a Roman Catholic church, we would not be welcome to take the Mass. So it's a very, you know, it's unfortunate, um, but you have to kind of, it's, it's not, it's not as simple as saying, well, people, they act well, so they should be allowed to, or they should, they, they, there's, there's no reason for them to not be um, if you also look at other groups like Mormons, uh, where you know you see you argue that there is good fruit in the lives of a lot of Mormons, but they have very different beliefs, and it's very clear that um, they're not associated with um, with the body of Christ right. because of, of their beliefs, and it's it can be hard to see that or not very clear on a regular basis to see those differences between. Um, a church that preaches the true gospel and a Roman Catholic church. Um, but I think that it comes back to that yeah. um, with um, the question of communion. Like, why don't we take communion together? Yeah, it's a complicated question. You were young? When I Come on! <laughs> I would go to the Catholic church they would not let me take communion because I was, I guess, Protestant and Methodist or whatever. But I would worship with them late into the hours of the night. And then, just a comment. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
So I wonder if I could add one more thing to what I've to what we've been talking about. Um, this is just my the way I think about it. This is not um, necessarily even what other people think. But it seems to me that uh, there are advantages to adding a second source of revelation. And that is that the Bible says some really hard things. Some things really difficult to swallow. It's and things that that are disturbing. And if you could just have a way to sort of take the edge off of those things. If you could just have a way for some group to say, well, you don't have to really believe that. You don't have to swallow this whole thing. That just makes Christianity so much... It goes down so much more smoothly. And to me, it's very hard for me not to think that this is the reason why so many groups have some other way to add, to adjust, to modify, to temperate, to make temperate the, what the Bible says. Because it gives them a way out of facing these things. And one of the evidences that make that drive me to that conclusion is that the hard truth of God's absolute sovereignty, his election of some to salvation, and his you know, not non-election of others to salvation, which is probably the hardest truth to accept that every one of these other groups has uses these other things as the way to get around believing that. And none of them believe this. In fact, they've condemned it as heresy or as, you know, basically excommunicated people believe this. So it's, to me, it's not just now, I'm sure there are many sincere Christians for whom this is not the motivation. They just happen to grow up in a context where everybody around them is orthodox or Catholic or charismatic and so they're just going along they're sincerely seeking Jesus with all their hearts but it seems to me that as a whole the way that they got there was that this provided a convenient escape from things they didn't want to accept Pick, up the, pick this up again next week and talk about these other things. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these minutes that we've had. We pray that you would take these things and use them in our lives, whether it be to encourage us or to shake us. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we pray that we would be agents of unity and truth, each of us. Now prepare us to worship you, O Lord, with joy and gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.